Disclaimer. Content warning. This podcast contains strong language, strong social commentary, strong depictions of violence, and some views that might not be acceptable for those under the age of 18 or with soft listening habits. Listener discretion is strongly advised. This episode of Focus Fights Audio contains the expressed opinions of Jay Christian Gary and the guests that he might have on. Their words are theirs and theirs alone do not necessarily reflect the views of Focus Fights or any other entities mentioned herein for fear of lost opportunities in whole or in part in the present or in the future. Any questions, comments, or concerns about this podcast can be referred to Focus Fights via DM on Twitter at Focus underscore Fights, on Facebook or Instagram at Focus Fights, or via email at focusfights at gmail.com. The guests that Jay Christian Gary brings on to the Focus Fights audio podcast are trained professional fighters, wrestlers, and combatants, and although we cannot speak for them, we should advise you, the listener, not to try any of the whole six or moves seen in their professions at home, school, or anywhere without adult supervision for fear of potential injury and or death. With that in mind, thank you. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd be lying to y'all and saying that this isn't a special episode, but unfortunately, as I always tend to do these whenever a combat sports figure passes away, this hurts the hardest for every combat sports fan pretty much, especially those who grew up off of old school Pyotrasu, dating all the way back from the 1950s all the way up to 2002. Or those who just grew up off the impact of New Japan Pro Wrestling for its first 30 years. But right as I released the most recent episode of Focus Fights Audio, which was episode 9, the first part with Rahil Ramzanali and Ryan Christian Ventura, the second part with J. Wayne Leggett and Celine Haga, it was announced... The Japanese icon, pop culture icon, Pyoresu icon, combat sports icon, Antonio Kanji Inoki had passed away. And while he did pass away in very rough shape, rough to the point where unfortunately it's still being seen on social media to this day, it's available actually right now on YouTube, but still though, it's shocking, it's horroring. And we're not going to focus on that. We should focus on the fact that he had a lasting legacy in the world of combat sports. And although it would be too long to list all his accomplishments here, the easiest would be that he was a 12-time world champion, including becoming the first Japanese competitor to become the WWF or WWE World Heavyweight Champion, despite the fact that the Big Fed in Stanford hadn't recognized it up until recently. And, not only that, becoming the first ever IWGP heavyweight champion back in 1987 when the promotion was celebrating its 15th anniversary. But in addition to that, Inoki has been given nine different special honors and inductions just off of pro wrestling or pure wrestling alone, including being in the WWE class of 2010, the Wrestling Observer inaugural class of 1996, and most recently as of 2021, the International Pro Wrestling that's based out of Wichita Falls, Texas, Halls of Fame. And not only that, in addition to his in-ring work, he also helped build a respectful yet controversial reputation outside of the ring bringing the world to professional wrestling as the ultimate humanitarian. Whether it was 
through helping free hostages in Iran as the Gulf War took shape, helping put over the World Wrestling Peace Festival, which only garnered 6,000 people in Los Angeles, feeding the homeless at Shinjuku Park, or bringing events and efforts to very controversial places on the map like China and North Korea, the latter of which culminated in the largest selling, largest drawing attendance for a professional wrestling event or set of events combined throughout the world. With WCW and New Japan Pro Wrestling back in 1995 helped launch the Collision in Korea events, which managed to get a combined 350,000 people into the national stadium in Pyongyang, North Korea. Albeit controversial, it's a figure that hasn't been totaled or topped since 1995. But still, the one thing that folks outside the world of professional wrestling knew in Okifor was his exhibition fight with the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali, back in 1976. That fight, which was deemed a 15-round draw due to most of the fight being Inoki backpedaling and kicking at Ali's legs, as well as a subsequent fight that would happen a decade later when Inoki took on heavyweight boxing champion at the time, the late Leon Spinks, would spawn the birth of what later would become mixed martial arts, and it's the subject of the tribute episode you're about to listen to. But still, for all the controversy that Antonio Kanji Inoki was known for, he was truly a globally recognized combat sports icon. And before this episode begins, we would like to pay tribute to Inoki with a 10 bell salute to honor those memories that have been left behind and the legacy which is continuing not only in the spirit of New Japan Pro Wrestling and in the Japanese combat or Japanese sports scene as a whole, but in competitors and figures like Kazuyuki Fujita in Pro Wrestling Noah, Rocky Asuka Romero in New Japan Pro Wrestling via Strong and their junior heavyweight division, and rising general manager Nobuhiko Takada among a whole host of others that shall be set forth in the future ahead. February 20th, 1943. Final bell at 79 years of age, October 1st, 2022. May Antonio Kanji Muhammad Hussein Inoki rest in eternal peace as he will forever live on in our hearts, in our minds, and in the fighting spirit of us all. Spirit bright, once locked 
You can you can say near Houston, Texas, since I'm like 45 minutes south from it, as this is also not just a special episode of the We Are Rising podcast, but if you're listening to this on the audio format, this is a special episode of Focus Fights Audio, as well as we are here to honor the life, the legacy, and the memories of one Antonio Kanji Inoki, who passed away. At the age of 79, 
I think over the weekend, if not on Monday, no, wait, actually, it was definitely over the weekend, but his memory is still felt that it felt like he passed away yesterday, but still, here to talk about this whole thing with us is the author of one of the books about the impact that Antonio Inoki and by extension Muhammad Ali and Judo Jean LaBelle, who he also lost in the combat sports world over the last couple of months. The impact that all three of those men had is acclaimed mixed martial arts writer, acclaimed combat sports fan, and a man on a certain bald father's band list that we don't want to talk about, but we know... <laughs> He wants to just enjoy the fruits of the combat sports labor. He is at yay underscore ye on Twitter. This is Josh Gross. How are you, sir? I'm good, Christian. How are you guys doing? What's up, Andrew? Hey, Josh. Thank you so much. And also, by the way, as well, a uh, great piece that you did on uh, on uh, Pitbull for his uh, fight this past weekend as well. Uh, I appreciate that. I don't, I don't write it as much as I used to, but I, when I do, I, I appreciate hearing stuff like that. Thank you. Is it, you know, what they say, you know, one of the things about MMA now is that we humanize fighters now. That's that's a big that's a big angle, and you certainly made <laughs> the creepy. Oh no, excuse me. Uh, much more like worrying about his life in the last time. Interesting. I'll, uh, I'll just say quickly on that. Like the first one of the first interviews I re- ever remember my career like meeting like was Pat Milovich, and he. Um, this was 2000, and he shared like his entire life story with me and like really intimate stuff. And I was blown away that fighters would do that. And so I think the idea of humanizing is, you know, telling their stories and understanding them has always been important and always been there. But if that's a trend now, I, I think that's probably a good thing. And uh, speaking of uh, life stories, death and all that, you know, like uh, Christian said, Antonio Inoki passed away this week. I, I got to say, you know, kind of like the Queen, kind of like some other like people. I always just thought, you know, when I heard about his death, I was kind of like, I can't believe it. This is like the end of an era because ever since I was a kid, since uh, Christian was a kid, I'm sure since uh, you were a kid, uh, Josh, you know, Noki's always just been around. And now he's not. He's not. What was your thoughts when you first heard about that he had passed away? Yeah, I, th- I think it's fair to say he's an icon and a legend. I mean, legend is a word that gets thrown around way too much, but it, it, it applies to Antonio Inoki. I mean, I don't think you can argue. It's like no one would have a good argument to say he's not a legend. Well, if he's not a legend, who is, really? Uh, I think comparing him to sort of the queen, the impact we felt to uh, people around the world or Muhammad Ali, uh, I, I think is, is, is fair to say. I got to be honest, I didn't know who Antonio Inoki was until I started covering Japanese MMA and learning about Japanese MMA. I grew up really not paying too close attention to pro wrestling. I mean, you know, when I was a young kid, like Ricky Dragas, Steamboat, and Hulk Hogan, and Andre the Giant, I knew. But it wasn't, I was much more of a sports fan, diehard sports fan. You know, Dodgers were my life, the Raiders, that kind of stuff. And I played sports. Um, and so I didn't really get a sense for who Antonio Inoki was in the world until I was around him covering pride events and things like that. And at that point, he was already like, older where you knew that this was someone who had lived a life and quickly you learned that he was the guy who had the match with Muhammad Ali and you know that uh, in Japanese pro wrestling circles he was incredibly important and so I didn't really respect that until I went and started researching and writing the book and, and under- talking to people who were around him and legacy he had and so I definitely developed much more of an appreciation for Antonio Noki in that process and I, I think no matter how you got to know who he was, you remembered him. He was like one of these charismatic people that you come across in life, celebrity, for one reason or another, he sticks to you. You know, him and Muhammad Ali had 
very similar qualities in terms of their charisma and the way crowds reacted to them and how much they felt comfortable in that attention. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why they connected so strongly too, because they could identify with one another that way. But uh, he's definitely a people that do, you know, you can talk about for a lot of different reasons. Obviously he lived a life. So there's certainly a lot to critique and say, you know, mistake here, mistake here. Why did he do this? Oh, he definitely had his foibles. There's no doubt this was not a perfect human being by any stretch of the imagination. But he lives an unbelievable life that I think people are, are rightly remembering. And if you think about that unbelievable life outside of combat sports, I hate to sound like Chris Collins' work, but here's a guy who, outside of combat sports, had basically diplomatic relations with North Korea long before Dennis Rodman was even hanging up the basketball shoes. He led a whole delegation of Japanese detainees out of Iraq. He was basically a member of the Japanese parliament while he was winding down his wrestling career. But in a way, do you think that all the stuff that Inoki did outside of combat sports, and this also includes, you know, his work after him versus Ali with Judo Jean LaBelle as the referee. Do you think that those outside influences help make him more known in the Western world? The, the impact of the Ali match, you're saying? Well, not just that, but also what he's managed to do away from competition. Oh, yeah, well, certainly I don't think he would have been able to do much of that had he not sought to make a name for himself and then really connect with Ali. Because I think uh, he had a name for himself in Japan and through Asia. Obviously, he came up uh, wrestling with Ricky Dozan, who was like really the godfather of Japanese pro wrestling, right? So that's mm -hmm. the guy who picked out Antonio Inoki. He saw him, the story goes, saw him in Brazil. Inoki's family was in Brazil and, you know, really big physical guy working in the plantations, whatnot, competing a great athlete, track and field, that sort of stuff. Ricky Dozan found him, brought him over. Antonio Noki learned how to really, you know, what the crowd wanted, what they loved, how you interacted with them. What was it like to be a giant star and be living that life? Because Ricky Dozan, you know, brought him up. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why Noki, uh, gained fame and notoriety he was also very sort of again coveting that like this was one of his one of the reasons that he i think people will point to his mistakes or his decision making and not understand it or say like oh he, he you know turned his back on some people because antonio Inoki was about himself and uh sometimes that desire to be you know the man and sort of drive everything forward would mean he had to step on other people it just you know and I, I don't, yeah, I, look, this is a guy who was so uh, universal through Japanese culture. When I was going to Japan in the early 2000s, you know, you'd go, you'd walk around Tokyo and you'd see those, these gambling parlors and the pachinko machines with the Noki on them, like, and they'd advertise it. You know, just, this is who he was. So I think his influence extends in a lot of different ways because he was so intent on uh, representing pro wrestling as a martial art. It brought him into a, a a world that has its own history, right? Martial arts on its own is vast and important. And so he was crossing streams in a lot of ways, and he could see the benefit of that. And then roping in someone like Ali, who just his presence in the world, who he was, the way he spoke, what he represented, who he was at that time. Remember in 1976, Ali was outside the Pope, the most famous man in the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Anoki was smart enough, crafty enough, and uh, really understood what he 
represented to people. And I think his influence extends a hundred different ways because of it. Um, and, and anything he touched one way or another is the sum of Antonio Noki, because I think you can't really pick out one thing or another and say that defines <laughs> who he was. Right. Right. Uh, and so actually going on about that, you know, you know, being this cult of personality, also the way he conducted himself outside, you know, like you said, like he had his own gimmick. He always went around with a red towel or red scarf anywhere. He was always, he always seemed to be always in a suit, in a suit and tie, or at least dressed up very nice. Uh, he had his own, uh, his own catchphrase that he would do for everything, you know, each me san da, mm -hmm. you know, it, you know, it, it makes sense, you know, same thing that Ali did, you know, I'm the greatest, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of similarities, but also, you know, it just shows, you know, that pro wrestling as, you know, that he didn't just live his pro wrestling gimmick in the ring. He took it with him outside the ring into every venture they did, whether it was politics, pachinko machines, all that stuff. And so when you were researching this guy, Josh, were you fascinated by this guy who just seemed to be living almost, as they say, as they say living the gimmick, as they say? Yeah, it was the gimmick because he lived in the pro wrestling world. And if you live in that world, you're living a gimmick. It's really hard to separate the character you play from who you are in real life. Because once you let that down, you're letting people behind the curtain, right? And it's got to be kayfabe and the whole thing. And again, sort of like I learned about this stuff as it went. I, I didn't end up like all interested in pro wrestling after the project or whatever it was. I'm just aware of the, the space and how it works. But, you know, that wasn't just the driving factor with him. It was also like I'm a sportsman, too. And so it's like that combination of things allowed it to be more than a gimmick. He used the smart pro wrestling gimmick. He said, as did Ali, by the way. Like, Ali learned that stuff from pro wrestlers in the early 1960s in Los Angeles. And he was a huge fan of a pro wrestler named Gorgeous George, mm -hmm. who in L.A. made his name at the uh, Grand Olympic Auditorium that Ali fought at twice and three times in 62. So that connection was Gene LaBelle. And Gene LaBelle, he was like the middle of the match. That tied everything together. And it was sort of that pro wrestling slash real world. I'm going to carry all of that together. And what people are going to see is a, a character, but it's me. I think that all sort of fit together for all three of those guys that you can really let it ever go. It became who you were because you couldn't let it go. But there were also many, many other layers and dimensions to who they were that we may not have seen all the time. But certainly Inoki played that role played that character i mean i saw him in all sorts of different environments i was around him in official capacity like a press conference or after parties where like at pride uh, i saw him in the gym working out i was around Inoki in a lot of different ways i interviewed him multiple times i interviewed him in little tokyo in, in downtown los angeles he came for an event and that was the first time i'd ever seen him slap people who were lined up to be slapped it was like you know and i didn't really i when it was the end of him speaking and people started to get up in line, like someone tipped me off. It's like, this is where he like starts slapping people. I was like, what, what, what is happening? And, uh, he did it. And I understood it was like him inferring his energy off these people. It was weird. But at the same time, by the third or fourth or fifth time I'd seen it, you get as part of like this ritual, who he is as a pro wrestler, what he represents, you know, this sort of fighting spirit. It's, he's got so much fighting spirit that he can push it in your body and your soul. And that's Antonio Inoki. And I think, you know, he lived his life with so much energy, it's, it's like almost impossible to comprehend. But I don't think you could really separate what the character was from the man was at a certain point. They're the same thing. And mm -hmm. you know what? I, that basically leads me to wonder, you know, when it comes down to him slapping all these people, I think I remember in a distinct 
instance. I think I remember in a distinct instance it was at Inoki Bombaye 2000, New Year's Eve 2000. He was in the ring and a whole line of people from the entranceway onto the ring was yep. basically getting, I guess, the hand of God, so to speak, by Antonio Inoki. They were basically lining up to get bitch slapped, so to speak. Excuse my lingo.
side, and you know, a lot of that was filtered into the calculus of how he did things. Well, I'll start uh, branch off that with this question that we have from a listener from the Discord, uh, Ryzen GMMA Discord. From Zar Boris, he wants to know, do you think Inoki could have actually succeeded in the MMA business during the boom period, or do you think Pride and K1 had pretty much cemented their place as market leaders and no one was going to compete with them? You mean like as a promoter? Like if he, yeah. He was, oh, yeah, because I like like also... Pride went out like 100% did his own thing from the beginning kind of thing? Yeah. Because I think I know that New Japan that when he was uh, the uh, president of New Japan uh, during that time, he did feature kickboxing and MMA bouts during the pro wrestling thing. But yeah, do you think that uh, had he gone full MMA or kickboxing, you think he could have uh, competed with Pride? Basically, you know, I'm not Tony Noki, I'm the promoter. Come see my show. I think the fact that he didn't really do that kind of answers the question. Because if he felt like he could go off on his own and sort of own the space. He was always that way. Like, that was always his energy to be the leader, to jump out in front. I think he wasn't the best businessman, and um, that may have gotten in the way of it. Plus, you know, there was a lot of competition, probably more competition in the combat sports space at that time than there was in pro wrestling, certainly for Antonio Noki. So I think he decided to continue to leverage that side of the space by aligning with it. By you know, he was part of Pride events as sort of a brand ambassador for a while, and, and that was more comfortable for him. It's an interesting question. I think if he had decided to do that, you know, even before uh, the early beginnings of, of Shuto, you know, Tiger Mask sort of really taking it to the next level of like pro wrestling as a martial art. If Inoki had done something in the wake of the Ali match, maybe, except that it was just so ill-received that it was kind of like he couldn't capitalize as much, I'm sure, as he wanted to based on how people felt about that result. And so maybe it took a little time for him to feel comfortably to get back in that space. I don't know. I, it, you know... Far be it for me to say that no, Antonio Inoki couldn't have done that. I, I think the way that played out is probably the way it would have played out best for him. And like sort of, you know, thinking about his connections, you know, he was at certain periods really important in what Pride was doing and at other periods pushed to the side and they didn't want him around. And I think that also was sort of the natural course of how it worked with whatever Inoki was kind of affiliated with. True, true. But I also, you know, wanted to say on this, I mean, yeah, Andrew did mention that New Japan Pro Wrestling had kickboxing fights, had obviously mixed martial arts fights or matches with the likes of Lyoto the Dragon Machida. I mean, hell, if it wasn't for Antonio Inoki, who the hell would have really have heard of a guy by the name of Lyoto the Dragon Machida in anywhere, the UFC, Bellator, what have you? But you also have to think about it. This dude had amateur wrestlers from Russia and Mongolia under his employ. He also had Muay Thai fighters under his employ. Ultimate fighters like Brian Johnson and Don Fry under his employ. See where I'm going with this? I mean, he basically blended some of those fighters who would normally be traditional in their respective sports. MMA, kickboxing, Muay Thai into being a top fighter, a top wrestler, really, for his promotion. Wouldn't you agree with that, Josh? Yeah, I think that all goes into exactly what he was trying to accomplish, right? He wanted pro wrestling to be considered not only a martial art, but the best martial art. And so he was always mixing with these different styles, I think, for different reasons. One, he actually, you know, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the submission holes we see in catch wrestling, which is what Carl Gotch did, which is who, who taught Antonio Noki most of this stuff. 
right? Mm-hmm. A lot of that lineage is, is real. When there was fights, when there was mixed fights in the 1930s, in the 1920s, in the 1910s, it was like this catch wrestling, literally the kind of stuff that Antonio Noki learned. So trying to test it against other martial arts made total sense. It was totally valid. And then bringing in those other martial arts to interact with more of the pro wrestling side, the fun side, the work side, makes sense. You know, it all sort of intertwines it. And I think that's really what his vision was. It was well-intentioned. It wasn't, you know, it, it, it wasn't a thing where I think, like, he was trying to fool anyone. I think he recognized people were smart enough to know the difference of when it was real, when it wasn't real. But keeping them intertwined was crucial to him, and that's why I... I think that's really inseparable, right? And that's why I think the Ali and Noki match itself is sort of a seminal event in this timeline of this collection of MMA, pro wrestling, and boxing at the time, but really pro wrestling and combat sports. For a long time, like, I thought, oh, the connection was really, I didn't understand it because I grew up with, like, the WWF version Mm -hmm. of what pro wrestling was. So to me, it didn't look anything like sports or Olympic wrestling or whatever. But the more I learned about the kind of wrestling they did in Japan and had that filter over and the shooto and pancreas, literally, you know, these kinds of matches, I was like, it's intertwined forever. You can't separate it. If you're trying to say there's walls between them, that your argument fails. So uh, Inoki was absolutely a driver of that. No, no question of it. Exactly. And, you know, the one thing I want to ask when it comes down to this, before I pass it back to Andrew and see if he has more Discord questions, is this dude basically helped make the big mega events, whether it be New Year's Eve or January 4th, really possible? Because he had these events that either sold out a smaller, like, ten or 15,000-seat arena on New Year's Eve or sold out big stadiums on New Year's Eve or even sold out the damn Tokyo Dome on January 4th help make that place a damn hot spot for New Japan Pro Wrestling, you know, just off of his presence. But do you feel that, you know, when it comes to Antonio Inoki, we really have him to thank for these big mega events that sell out arenas, sell out stadiums all over the world? I wouldn't thank him alone, but he's definitely among the elite people who have sold tickets, created interest, drawn media attention, been able to convince the public that what he's doing matters in a large way. And, and certainly, I mean, look, I mean, you guys are having me on because of one of those events, right? Uh, certainly, Inoki's history is, is larger than just the Ali match, but the Ali match was a significant event. I mean, really, go ahead. I mean, in a way, you could basically say that the Ali Inoki match, which obviously had closed circuit undercards, especially in New York at Shea Stadium with Andre the Giant versus Chuck Wepner, the original Rocky, by the way, you know, you could basically say cards like that helped lead to the true launch of, you know, the model we now know officially as pay per view or in the WWE's case, premium live events. But yeah. You can basically thank the Inoki Ali fight for launching closed circuit TV, which led to pay per views. Wouldn't you agree with that as well? Well, there was, there was a closed circuit before this, but it was definitely a piece of that. Uh, no, no doubt about it. You know, I don't know my book, right? So, if you can read the caption there, the forgotten fight that inspired mixed martial arts and launched sports entertainment, right? 
Mm-hmm. So I, I really feel like this was a kickoff point for what we consider sports entertainment, which is essentially whatever pro wrestling has become today. And also these crossover bouts that we see, like Mayweather and Gregor or Jake Paul. I think it's all sort of the same bucket in terms of creating public interest in a combat sports umbrella event. It's got elements of the show of the pro wrestling. It's got elements of the competition, the sport, whatever the combat sport is we're dealing with. I, yeah, I think Ali versus Inoki was worthy of being a book because there was so much that led to it in terms of combat sports history, the event itself, and then everything that branched off afterwards. And I, I don't think that you can separate what sports entertainment looks like today, how fans interact with it, what the combination is between pro wrestling and martial arts and mixed martial arts, because that still exists, right? Mm-hmm. I don't watch much WWE, but like, isn't Daniel Cormier now refereeing some match? <laughs> Daniel right. Cormier, surprise, surprise, he will be refereeing something called the fight pit between Matt Riddle, former UFC fighter, and Seth freaking Rollins this weekend. And it, it sounds a lot to me like right out of what we're talking about. Um, yeah, combat, of course. Combat sports, mixed martial arts, pro wrestling mesh. Uh, look, if you want to talk about WWE... Vince McMahon, his father, and the son who just retired, Ali Inoki does not happen without them. So, you know, it's, it all sort of works together. And, um, you know, I, I do think Antonio Inoki was a major player in the long art of pro wrestling and combat sports. And a very, very important character whose legacy, I think, will always be remembered. Obviously, not in the way that Ali would, nor should it be, I think, but... For some people in the world, he's as big a star, as famous, as important. And you can understand that. And uh, I, I think, um, you know, in some respects, isn't he, he's, you know, yeah, Ali, uh, Antonio Inoki's a WWE Hall of Famer, right? I mean, it's like, it's impossible to separate him out, the the combat sports side. And I think that's 100% reason why you just said what you said, Christian, is that to me, the way that I put the subhead on the book was that, yeah, this event, if you look at it, and you look at all the branches that came off of it, this was kind of really like the point where everything had been building towards what sports entertainment could be. And if you look at Vince McMahon Jr., his motivations, I mean, literally he was involved in this event, and he saw himself attaching to Ali and attaching to Inoki and saying, this is the global pro wrestling experience that I want to have and build. And for a lot of people, I think this was a seminal event. Uh, we got some more questions from Discord. Uh, this one's kind. Of, this one kind of gives away the book in a way, but I'll still ask you anyway. It's been, it's been out since 2016, man. Give this shit away. Oh, it's all did, good. Did Anoki did out Ali and trick him into a real contest when it was supposed to be a work? Man, you know we're jumping through hoop after hoop after after hoop trying to figure that out. I I've heard everything that like oh that it was a work, but then it was it turned into a shoot that it was actually a work, but then it was you know, initially proposed by the McMahons as a work. And Ali said, no way am I laying down for anyone. I'm not doing that. Mm. And then no one really knew what it was. Mm. Ali was promoting it with pro wrestlers. He was on ABC White World of Sports doing pro wrestling. It was clear. But then he'd go on The Tonight Show and say, this is 100% real. I wouldn't fool anybody. This is a real fight. And then he got to Japan, and no one really knew what it was. Everybody kind of thought it was a joke. But then Inoki's people started, and Inoki were like, no, this is serious. Like, I, I know how to break your arm if it comes to that. 
And so the negotiations on rules got serious the week of the fight. And, you know, it, it basically came down to no one trusts one another. And we're going to all kind of say this is real. And there's some protections, like you can grab a rope or you can't do this, you can't do that. But, yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, th- I think it was it was weird, but awesomely weird. It was real. But at the same time, it was so structured and walled off that it, you couldn't. It's hard to call it like a real fight. But it, I mean, it, it was. Anoki kicked him in the leg over a hundred times. Uh, Ali got blood clots because of it in his leg. He'd never been kicked in the leg like that before. Um, so I think if we look like if, if these two guys got matched up in a real MMA fight, it would look like a real MMA fight, not like a worked old Pancrase fight. I think Ali wouldn't have allowed that. Ali was too much of a competitor. He wanted it too bad. He asked for this. He always wanted to fight a wrestler. He always wanted to be in something legitimate. He understood the history of boxers fighting grapplers. That's a real history, not a pro wrestling history. He wanted to be part of that. So I think I think in the end, everybody got nervous and treated like a real fight, and that's why it looked the way it did. I think that's also still kind of why the appeal of it still lasts to this day, because we still don't know the exact exactly what happened. And, you know, it's kind of like when, like, I almost don't want to know, kind of like worrying about how the, worrying, uh, how the sausage is made. Kind of, kind of, the mystery behind it, I think, is what helps sustain, sustains it pretty well. Yeah, look, at the character, the characters and the, the weirdness of it, and the pro wrestling ties will always sort of cloud that. But I, I feel like I have a good enough sense to know that what it was supposed to be, what it really wasn't, and what it turned into. And, you know, for me, the lasting impact is that it was sporting enough that there's a sports legacy to it. And that's, you know, that's that's how I real sort of view the lasting impact because it created a new genre in a lot of ways, a new genre of fighting. A lot of people saw that in their emotions, like their imaginations peaked. Uh, you saw a lot of more mixed style fighting coming up in, in North America after that, way before the UFC uh, and so, you know, I think this, this, that's where the roots and the genesis have a, a real lasting impact for me in, in my perspective. Yeah. Um, and we have one more question in the Discord, and uh, that's from, from Star Wars as well. And he wants to know, I don't, I don't know if you know the answer to this, if you don't, that's totally fine. Uh, what did Jai Baba, uh, Antonio Inoki's rival at All Japan, think about Ali versus Inoki? I don't know if you happen to know the answer to that. I don't think I have an answer for that. I, I'd have to look up honestly when he when he passed away. Uh, it may have been later. He was older than Anoki, um, and you know I didn't spend a lot of time. I wrote a little bit about him, but more about like sort of Anoki's motivation. But not even that. It's more like just his desire and sort of what that meant in terms of the relationship and how he split off and did his own thing and didn't really care about relationships. Hmm. Um, so I'm not sure what he thought. I mean, you know. I could only guess, but I'd only be guessing. I, I, I don't really, I don't really, I prefer not to do that. And I also probably make nobody might even know because, you know, you know, like they said, you know, they kept kayfabe very strict. So Johnny Baba may have taken his opinion of him to his, to the grave for all we know. Also just want to say as well that the, uh, Inoki Alcarni alley question was from King Zero, uh, 24, one of our favorite. I just, uh, I just want to say that Johnny Baba passed away in 1999. So I look stupid that I didn't know that, but that's okay. It's okay to look stupid sometimes. I would say that. I guess it wasn't important enough for me to chase down and really look what he thought of it at the time. They'd been long split. Inoki was off to establish New Japan Pro Wrestling, was off, did his own thing. Mm-hmm. And to me, that branch of it, um, you know, really, Ricky Dozan was a much more interesting character in terms of the Japanese pro wrestling world, as far as I was concerned. I spent more time on him uh, than Giant Baba. 
and one uh, the last question I have for you, uh, Josh, is you know, uh, you know, one Anoki was one of a kind. Do you think that we'll ever see, you know, not just Japan, maybe in America, or maybe there's somebody who there is now who is, and you can say their name, but if there isn't, do you think we'll ever get somebody like Anoki ever again, who's just this, uh, this ubiquitous presence, uh, celebrity, you know, someone who's in sports, uh, television, all this stuff, and who just has such an impact on almost on on the on almost everything uh, culturally? people ever get somebody like that ever again right so it's, the, it's that last part of it that, that makes me hesitate right so these guys these men and women and you know we're talking about really the ali and the and nobody right yeah. you know they had such an enormous effect culturally on the people around them the time the space that seems like a much more difficult thing in this day and age where becoming a celebrity is not that hard or, you know it's almost like in its own industry now industry of celebrity so the value of it's a lot less in the, the social impact. I mean, all these social impact is incredibly well documented and understood, right? And then Inoki, uh, culturally speaking, is a celebrity, is sort of the figure within Japan and parts of Asia, and then what he did politically and some of the things you referenced earlier. I mean, it's hard to imagine characters like that coming along too often. Uh, I never say never. Uh, there are going to be people who are incredibly important and charismatic uh, in moving forward, whether it's in our lifetimes or not. But there are going to be people like this because special people emerge that, that make an impact on the rest of us. Um, so I don't want to say no, but it, it it's hard to imagine. It, it'll be something that I probably haven't considered yet in a way that they affect the world or do something that I, you know, none of us have really thought of or imagined. How many people in their early 70s were thinking about you know, creating a sport of, of mixed fighting. Uh, you know, Gene LaBelle had to fight in the 60s, but, you know, it was very fleeting. It wasn't like a thing. There wasn't a, a community around it. There wasn't huge interest around it. Now it's a globally known thing, in part because of guys like Inoki's contributions, and obviously Ali's small piece of it. But um, I'm just going to say, yeah, but having no idea where they come from and also acknowledging that it's, it seems like it's a lot less likely. Right, but there are going to be people as ambitious as Antonio as Antonio Inoki, and you know they uh, they may leave an impact, and if they leave one for the better, I mean I, I hope they exist. Both these people made a huge uh, impression on a lot of us. I'd say for the most part, the impressions were positive and things that we think fondly of and remember well, and see their contributions as like meaningful. Right, that's why the question was asked. So. I'm just going to leave it at, like, I hope so. I think they're rare, uh, and when they do come along, you know, we'll know. We'll know and we'll see that. But uh, I think there's not too many people like them, and, you know, it, it's important to remember that and sit in that and, and recognize that this one moment, this one night in their lives, right, that we're still talking about, we could probably talk about for another 10 hours or whatever. I wrote a whole damn book about it. People were really <laughs> talk about it. All these sorts of things. There's a blip in the radar for, for what they did and what their lives look like, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it, there's not a lot of people who come along you can say that about, but um, hopefully hopefully they will, and, and I look forward to seeing in my life if they do. Understood, understood. And my last question is an interpretation on what Yup That Guy asked on Discord. And in a way, you know, it has to admit that Inoki was 79 years old when he passed away this past week. 
And it kind of makes you think, you know, about the impact that he had, obviously. But let's just say, if he were like 10 or 20 years younger, do you think that Inoki's impact would have still been lasting to the point where, in a way, he would have potentially saved, you know, not just Japanese mixed martial arts, but Japanese combat sports, maybe even... You know, in some little trinkets, Japanese sports in general. I don't think so, because 20 years ago I was around him, and I saw the kind of character he was and the baggage that came with him. And, you know, again, I sort of alluded to, you know, maybe not the, the best businessman. Um, um, I, I don't know. I, that's sort of along the lines of the last one in terms of, like, you know, legacy and uh, what people accomplished and when they accomplished it. I... Um, I think his impact was enormous on the industry that we know today. I happen to think that the Japanese mixed martial arts business is doing all right. Um, I wouldn't consider it dead. I think if you're talking about it that way, you're missing a lot. I do think that uh, there are complications in Japan that you don't see in other parts of the world that are uniquely Japanese. Um, you know, part of that obviously affected what Pride ended up, uh, you know, them going under and uh, the UFC buying them. Um, and, uh, you know, I I don't know that any of that would have changed if Inoki, I mean, maybe if he was a better businessman or, you know, his motivations were different. But this was a guy who I think was about pushing boundaries. And maybe that's why, you know, he wasn't suited for being the guy who was going to be the, the main, you know, chief executive behind running the successful business that became like the UFC or something. You know, I think he was much more of a... Uh, a big thinker, kind of imaginative guy, create almost a creative as opposed to a businessman. And, and um, you know, his influence was based on the things that he did create, really. Mm-hmm. And two of them were businesses, but they were always troubled. Um, and uh, so, no, I'm going to say no. I, I think that the the course of the Japanese MMA business got as big as it did during the periods it did, in part, in large part, because of Inoki. When you sell out National Stadium and there's 90,000 people and he skydives in and they go apeshit over it, <laughs> like that's Antonio Inoki, right? And uh, I, I think part of that is because he had this fight with Muhammad Ali. How many people are going to say that they had a fight with Muhammad Ali where Muhammad Ali didn't mix rules and he didn't do boxing? One guy. And that was Antonio Inoki who dedicated his life to making you know events like this. And I think his contributions were as big and as great as they were. And for anyone to sort of sit back and think, well, what could have been or what he could have done, man, look at what he did. Just look at what he did and let's, you know, let's, let's think about that. And there's enough to focus on there and say the legacy is pretty, pretty damn impactful. And if the Japanese MMA business faltered along the way, it's, that's not his problem necessarily. I would lay that much more at the feet. Promoters who ran afoul of tax interests in Japan, you know, Master Ishii had tax issues and that's why K1 suffered, right? And then... You know, Saki Kibara had issues, obviously, and, and DSE had issues with organized crime in Japan. Those were decisions they made, and I don't lay that at the feet of, you know, what Anoki could have done, because he did a lot, and, you know, he lent his name and likeness and obviously got embroiled, and he was far from perfect, too. He, he definitely had his warts. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I gotta I got to stay like, you know, I feel a lot more bullish on Japanese MMA uh, today than I did five years ago. Uh, when I wrote a piece about um, does Japanese MMA need Saki Kibara, not Inoki.
low-key, because I think Sebastian Kabara ends up being a, I'm not going to say more important than Antonio Inoki, but much different in terms of having the business function in a way that matters in Japan and matters internationally. And I think there's no debate, and maybe I'm sort of just like rambling here, but I want to finish with this, that like, there's no debate that the talent coming out of Japan is much better now than it was five years ago. When you talk about the level of competition for them against or to consider the best internationally, right? I think you're seeing the products of fighters being built in Japan go off and win championships in the UFC. And they're different kinds of fighters. Jerry Prochaska is a different kind of fighter, and he's different because he came out of rising. And all that tradition that followed him and sort of the martial arts and the different way of thinking about it and the fanfare and the flair and all that sort of stuff mattered with who he ends up being as a fighter. And I think all the people who come out of Japan, any fighter who sort of embraces that or feels that, some small piece of them is also Antonio Inoki. But I know, you, Josh, you got you got to head out. But uh, before you go, I just want to get an opportunity for you to plug everything you're doing for Sure Dog, uh, plug, of course, your book, and anything else that you want to give uh, anything you want to shout out to. Thank you. Um, you know, I'm probably not as doing as much for Sure Dog as I should be doing, but uh, I think just check out their stuff regardless. Um, you know, it's a, it's an important uh, independent MMA website. I, I like to see people look at it uh, and, and check out the stuff that's going on there. The book you can find on Amazon or you can get the, the publisher. The, the link is in my Twitter uh, profile. Um, you know, and I'm still watching some combat sports. I'm also covering a lot of soccer. So, uh, you know, different, different world entirely, man. And it also sort of makes me realize how unique combat sports is because of the characters like we talked about today. Uh, and uh, it never really gets boring, i got to say. I mean, obviously, yeah. when you are as much of a fan of combat sports as Andrew and I are, you never get tired of this stuff. Well, that's good to hear. You know, I haven't considered myself a fan for a long time because I won't let myself be a fan, but, like, I understand that because I started as a fan, I watched it as a fan, I appreciate it as a fan, and then, like, Journalism ruined all of that for me. But I accept that, and that's, like, part of the price. So and, I'm all right. Yeah, but, man, continue with what you're doing. You know, Inoki, Ali vs. Inoki is a great book. I read it when it came out. I figured I'm going to have to do another reread of it now with the passing of uh, Inoki. And uh, who knows, maybe 20 years from now, you'll be writing about Paul versus Silva. Oh, <laughs> no. Andrew, don't even give him that idea. Do not I mean, give him I that idea. That's not as crazy as, as, as you would think, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, come to think of it, it would be even worse if you were to do a story or do a book about Mayweather versus Asakura. Come on, man. Or whatever. Or whatever weird thing. But I uh, know, Josh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you for telling us about all the uh, notes. Uh, oh, sorry. Quick question. Did, he, did you get slapped by Inoki when you met him? I got Never, never slapped by Inoki. Oh, okay. Never slapped by Okay. And but, you know yeah, what? A... One more thing we can go ahead and say. Quick plug. You can follow Josh Gross on Twitter at yay underscore ye. Is that correct, Josh? That's, that's it. That's it. Great. And uh, make sure to get your copy of Ali vs. Noki at your local bookstore. If you happen to be near a bookstore, Amazon, Kindle, or whatever. Uh, the publisher, that's from the publisher. And, you know uh, what, basically you what Josh you're saying, from... Andrew, is if you get Josh Gross's book, buy it legally. You know, buy yes. it any place where you can get the book legally, either at a brick-and-mortar store, if there's still one, or online. That's all we got to say I, about that. Man, yes. don't, don't pirate my book, please. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you again, Josh. We really appreciate the time, man. Thank you again. Thank you for having me.